This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nathan, Nathan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obad the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Ammon. Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abihud. Abihud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azel. Azel the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim. Achim the father of Elihud. Elihud the father of Eliza. Eliza the father of Mathan. Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. That's why I didn't ask anybody else to read it. And if you want to make a run for the door now, we've locked it. Who are you? Who are you? How do you, how do you best answer that question of who you are? How do you, how do you describe yourself to other people when they ask who you are? I guess there are all kinds of avenues that we could go down. There, often we talk about what we do. Maybe I'm a student, I'm a first year, or I work in this kind of thing, or I work in this area, or this is me. We define ourselves by our employment and our job. Perhaps where we come from. I was born on the Wirral, um, from Wales, I'm born in Oxford, or whatever it might be. We define ourselves by the place of our birth. Maybe it's our family situation. I'm, I'm married, I'm single, I'm a dad, I'm not, whatever it might be. Maybe particularly from school days, it's, we might define ourselves by the kind of groups in which we feel comfortable. Do you remember being at school? Some of us perhaps still are. You fit into the sporty group, or the arty group, or the debating society, or the science, or the skaters, or the nerds, or whatever it might be. Who, who are you? How do you define yourself? Another line of thought in answering that question is that often people look into their past. They look in generations gone by because they want to know who they are now. It's particularly popular with a TV programme um, called Who Do You Think You Are? Maybe some of you have watched them. I think they're extraordinary. It's a fascinating and often quite a moving journey as we sort of sit with a celebrity for an hour and we, in a sense, without some of their usual egos, uncover some of their history, their background. We see the highs and the lows, the troubles, the sadness of past generations. Stephen Fry, for example, I remember... 
um, a little while ago, uncovering with him sort of members of his mother's Jewish family who were, who were murdered in Auschwitz. Or Bill Oddi, um, a Brummie, who suffers from depression. He took a year out of work, 2009, and he saw that he has a, a family history of depression. His mum, some of her family members as well. It's just surprisingly moving. It, one of the things that really strikes you, though, is some of the black sheep that turn up. Most, most celebrities have something. I guess it makes good TV, so they focus in on the black sheep. But someone with a bit of notoriety, someone who doesn't quite fit in, somebody who goes against the flow and is a bit different. And we see something of these celebrities, you see something of who they are because of who came before them. And so as Matthew begins this little this theological biography of Jesus, we see something of that. He's answering some of that question for us. Who is Jesus? And it's not the answer we would expect. His point, really, um, in this chapter is that Jesus is story doesn't begin in Matthew 1. It begins many hundreds of years before. To understand who Jesus is, as to his human nature, we need to dig back and back and back and back. And so this genealogy, this family tree, these names and names and names, the obscure people, warts and all, are there with black sheep displaying something of who Jesus is. And if you, you are new to church things, then bear with me, this may not have looked like a particularly hopeful or exciting um, number of verses. The Bible's not just like this, in case you think it is. But I hope by the end of the, the evening, you shall see something of how important these verses are. And the way we're going to do it, is we're going to zoom in on 1 verse 1, and if you like, that will be our structure for what we're going to be looking at. Um... There are three little phrases, and we're going to unpack each phrase, basically. Use that as, if you like, the launch pad, the, the, um, the springboard to go to the rest of the chapter. So this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, will be first point. The son of David, if you like, will be second point. The son of Abraham will be the third point. So he begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, first point. One of the hints and tips with writing is you always want to start strong. And so Matthew jumps right in, and these very few um, verses, the words at the very beginning, tell us why he's writing. Now our version says the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, you've got a little footnote at the bottom there, an account of the origins. It, it could literally be the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. Which is interesting, isn't it? If you know anything about the Bible, that is a striking word, because we're thinking maybe it's the start of a story. It's genesis, it's linking back to the beginning of the Bible. Thoughts of new things, of fresh starts. Maybe Matthew's saying, this is something new. This is important. Maybe this is world changing. And it's new and yet we should have expected it because he's Jesus, the Messiah. He's the one they've been waiting for. This is God answering his promises. Here is God's King, Jesus. It's the genesis of him, but we should have expected him. God has made promises and he delivers. And there will have been many, many, many who doubted that. This comes at a point of 400 years of silence. Can you imagine looking at your watch? Imagine the waiting. God has made these promises, but he's just being quiet. There's nothing coming. Now Matthew says against all the odds, here is Jesus, the Messiah, 
Here is God keeping his promises. Here, walking onto the pages of history, is God doing something new and fresh. The genesis of Jesus the Messiah, God's promised king. And if our question is, well, what does that mean? Then Matthew fills it in for us. And he does it in very Jewish terms. He was writing this primarily to people from the Jewish faith about 2,000 years ago, wanting to convince them that Jesus is God's king. And so he does it in those kinds of terms, with those kinds of um, broad brushstrokes. And he does it, if you see in verse 1, we've already said, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does it mean, he's the son of David? Have a look at verse 17, the end of the genealogy. And you'll see that David is really important. You see verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what Matthew is saying is, in this genealogy, in this family tree, we've got three sets of names, and basically David marks a delineation. So there's an Abraham section, verse 2 to 6, Abraham to David, roughly before they were in the land. Then you've got a David section, verse 6 to 11, that's the middle chunk, that's roughly when they're in the land. And then you've got this exile section, verse 12 to 17, they're, they're out of the land. So, before the land, in the land, after the land. You've got three groups of 14 people, and actually, if you track it down, David is the 14th name. So, in Matthew's mind, David is key, and we say, why is 14 so important? And the honest answer is we don't know. The commentators all say it's really important, but no one's quite sure why 14 is so important. Some think it was a key number for Jews of the time. I think there were 14 high priests, that kind of thing. And so Matthew is kind of there with his highlighter pen saying, look at the 14s, look at the 14s, look at the 14s, but no one's quite sure. We don't really know. What we do know is that Matthew shapes the material for us through the genealogy to make some really important points as to who Jesus is. So we know that 14 is key. We don't quite know why. But trust me that it is. Maybe one day we will know. Um, I, want you to, I want to point out three really important things in terms of the way he structures the genealogy. And it's slightly technical. So you're going to have to stick with me. But I'm going to give you three pictures um, to help you kind of hang stuff from. So I want you to imagine you've got a key. Okay, and you go into the fridge and get some meat out. And then you have a rest. Okay, key, meat, rest. Okay, we'll get there, don't worry. First point then. Some see that there is real uh, significance in something that the Hebrew is called numerology. And that was where letters were given particular values. Okay, so there was a way of giving letters values. And when you look at David, you have his consonants in Hebrew, you have a D, a V and a D, which makes the number 14. So again, they say that is really important. Maybe they're saying David is the key to unlocking the genealogy to help us understand it. That's where you get key, okay? So DVD, David, is number 14, which is really important. Which means to understand Jesus, we have to understand David. David is really important. The second thing, though, is you've got, remember, you've got these three chunks of 14. You've got before the land, in the land, after the land. Pre-land, post-land. The promised land in the middle. 
And again, the way that in Bible times they would often emphasise something, it was the middle bit that was really key. So for us, as we're watching the soap opera, it's the cliffhanger at the end, that's where it all lifts up to you. We, we finally get there, and it's the adverts, and you've got to wait till next time to see what was going on. For them, it was the middle. The meat in the middle. Okay? Key, meat. Okay? The important meat in the middle of the sandwich. Which is a way of Matthew saying, notice the bit in the middle. And the bit in the middle is all about kings. The bit in the middle is the kingship. It's David's. It's Matthew saying, he's the son of David, he's going to come and restore the monarchy. Here is God's king, and that matters. Okay, so you've got David as being the way to unlock it. You've got the middle bit, which means that the kingship is coming back, the kings are back. And then here's the third one, and this is, I'm still wrestling with this, but I'm going to go for it anyway. You can come and chat to me afterwards, tell me why I'm wrong. Remember, 1 verse 1, this is the genesis of Jesus. Okay, in Genesis 1, what you've got is you have got six days. And then in 2, at the very start of 2, you've got the final seventh day, which is the climax, which is God resting, it's God enjoying his creation. Here in Matthew, we haven't got six days there. We've got three fourteens. That make sense? Which is slightly different. Which is like six, which is like six days, though. So it's as if you've got the first fourteen, day one, day two. Second fourteen, day three, day four. Third fourteen, day five, day six. Which then leaves us without the climax. It leaves us without rest. It leaves us without where creation is going. And then Jesus comes. So is it that he is the seventh day? He is the the climax of the genealogy, the climax of creation. So has Matthew structured the genealogy in such a way to show us that, that David is vital, he is the key, that the kings are in the middle, the kings are the meat, the kings are back, but here's a king who is going to come and who is going to provide rest true rest he's going to finish off almost the days of creation because if we put ourselves into the shoes of people at this time the kings did not have a good name for themselves the kings were not good the kings were there to lead God's people the kings were there to point them to God but actually what they did was lead them away from God the story of the Bible continues from being in the land and we see they are exiles. And often it was the king's fault. The king led them into false worship. The king led them into judgment and so the king led them into exile. The kings, rather than leading God's people towards him, led them away from him. And so onto the scene, Matthew may be saying, here is God's king. Here is the one who is going to come and rule God's people. Here is the one who is going to come and re-establish the monarchy. Here is the one who's going to come and bring rest. But as well, if you know if you know your Bibles, you know that David was a really important king and God made him an incredible promise. I'm going to read to you from 2 Samuel 7. It's one of the kind of crucial chapters in the Bible. It's one of the crucial prophecies. We'll come to another in a second with Abraham. But here is the one for David. 
It's a useful chapter for us to get to grips with. The Lord says this to King David. He says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father, he'll be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, wielded by human beings, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So what's God doing? He's promising to King David that someone from David's line is going to be incredibly blessed. God is going to establish his kingdom through this king. He's going to build a house or a household. And The really strange thing is the, the repetition of forever. Verse 13, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. You can imagine the excitement when David has his first son. Solomon, he's appeared on the scene and it's a party at the maternity suites. Everybody who's anybody is there because here is the one. He's got a lot to live up to. Here is the one from David's line who's going to establish an eternal dynasty. And it starts off pretty well. He's no doubt cute. But he is growing and maturing and developing. He's wise and godly. The kingdom is expanding. God seems to be blessing this son of David. Looking pretty hopeful. Is he the one? But then we fast forward a few years later and we see it didn't work. By the end of his reign, it's very sad. Things, things have slipped. He's wandered away. His heart has been captured by other things. He's run after other gods. And Solomon is not the one. This is not the son of David whom the Lord will establish a dynasty through forever. And in fact, Andy alluded to it briefly this morning, because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom splits into north and south. And we're left confused. Who is the son of David that God has promised? Whom he will establish a dynasty through forever. Who? Matthew knows. Matthew knows it's Jesus. Here is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Here is the king they've been waiting for. Notice it's on the way past. Um, in Bible times, kings, the idea of kings, in theory, were really good things. Kings brought security, they brought rest, they brought stability from enemies, they brought order and direction. To, to live under God's king would be a really good thing, an amazing place to live. And security is something in our times that people still crave. Because people don't have it. That's why for many in the past few years there have been real stresses because of financial in- insecurity, financial uncertainty, worry, stress, concern. People are busy saving and they're tightening their belts and looking for security. That's why people get so stressed and worried about houses. People putting up expensive house alarms or medical insurance or or planning A, B and C for their lives and having to control every little detail of what's going on because because we feel insecure. 
Which is why there's such fear in the world at the moment. Terrorism and wars because of the darkness and sin. Security is something that we long for. Which is, of course, why Jesus, why with God's King we can be utterly secure. Because he is good. We can trust him in life, we can trust him with whatever comes around the corner, we can trust him because he is God's King. So back to verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham is another key Bible character. Someone who God makes another promise to. And actually, if you, if you look at it, I think, whom the whole Bible story is shaped around this promise. This is a thread that begins back in Genesis 12, and, and I think it goes all the way through. And we pick it up in Revelation at the end of the Bible. Here is a promise that God makes to Abraham. Genesis 12 and verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is old. Abraham can't have children anymore with his wife. And yet despite him having no kids, despite Sarah being past the age of childbearing, then one is going to come from his family and bless the whole world. I wonder with David if the, the emphasis is, is on blessing in terms of temporal, eternal blessing, whereas with Abraham it's geographic to the ends of the earth. And onto the stage of human history walks Jesus. He is the one from Abraham's family who's going to bless the world. Blessing, blessing really means favour with God. So it's striking, you get to the end of Matthew, and Jesus commissions his people his disciples, to go to the ends of the earth, telling them about him and his authority and his rule. Take the life-transforming message of the gospel as far as you can, says Jesus. And I love this about the genealogy, and we're about to jump in there, is you get some hints of that, even here. You get some hints of that global, barrier-crossing reach of Jesus' kingdom in these verses. Because there are some black sheep. There are some real surprises. There are some people who really ought to have been airbrushed out if we had our way. What do I mean? Well, as I was reading it, I expect your mind wandered off a bit. And then you came back in again. And we drift off and we drift in. And we know the order. We know what's coming next. B was the father of C. C the father of D. D the father of E. E the father of F. F the father of G. And we go on and on and on. You kind of know what's coming next. We might pause on a strange name, but we know what's happening. We know what's going to go. We spot the patterns. The thing about patterns, though, is that the differences stand out. And Matthew knows that. We're meant to spot the breaks. We're meant to spot the surprises. And there are a few of them. And I think here Matthew is making a real point for us. He he is there, if you like, he's got his highlighter in his hand. And he's highlighting the breaks for us. He's highlighting the surprises. He's giving us a nudge and a wink and saying, here's a black sheep. Pop that one in there. What are they? 
But I think particularly he highlights four women for us. And there's an intake of breath, and we don't like that very much, but it might sound strange to us, but to them in their culture, whether we like it or not, in a patriarchal society, genealogies were about men. That might sound strange to us in the West, but even today in in societies around the world, you will have the same thing happening. So, So he mentions women, and it's meant to make us kind of raise our eyebrows. There's a surprise. But it's more than that. It's, it's who these women are that Matthew mentions. He's wanting us to zoom in and think about it. These aren't kind of shy, retiring flowers. Have a look down with me. And you'll see who they are. Verse 3. Judah, sorry, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We'll come back there in a second. Or verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So you've got Tamar, verse 3, you've got Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and then in verse 6 you've got Uriah's wife. Her, her name is Bathsheba. But Matthew doesn't even mention her name. I don't know who you would like to have in your family tree. Who would you quite like to be related to or descended from? Maybe someone famous or powerful or generous or academic or whatever it might be. I think a striking thing in this genealogy is that these are a pretty unlikely collection of people to include in the family of God's king who's going to come and rule eternally because he's the son of David and Bless the nation because he's the son of Abraham. These are the black sheep. These are the people we would airbrush out. This is what Photoshop was invented for. Why is that? Well, firstly, they all come from outside Israel. So Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was from Moab and Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. These lands aren't the sort of friendly next-door neighbour type allies. These are enemies. These are the enemies of the people of God. And these people's blood are in Jesus' veins. It's extraordinary. that They're not just women, says Matthew. They are foreign women. They are enemy women. From people outside the people of God. And, and it's worse than that, if you like. That many of these women had to put a polite spin on it, more than questionable sexual morality. Tamar, Genesis 38, disguises herself, seduces her own father-in-law Judah, and gets pregnant by him. Rahab was a prostitute, Joshua 2. Bathsheba, or Uriah's wife, flaunted herself, bathing naked in front of David's palace, ends up committing adultery with him, and then her husband is murdered. On Samuel 11. And then Ruth, some even think she is overly forward as she pursues Boaz. I think the jury is out there. Why are these women there? Why does Matthew highlight them for us? What point is he making? Why isn't it sanitised? Why aren't they quietly forgotten? deliberate. Do you remember Jesus, son of Abraham? He's the one who's going to bless the nations. And the gospel is going to go out to non-Jews and even Israel's enemies are going to be blessed. 
And so Matthew, as well as telling us who Jesus is, tells us something of why he came. It's the kind of people he came for. He came for people with a sinful history, with a difficult background. Because look at where he came from. Look at the kind of people in his family tree. And I expect reading of these four women in some way will divide us. Some of us will find comfort in them. Because you've got a history. Because you've got skeletons in your closet. and Things have gone on and things are going on that you're ashamed of and that you would die if we knew about. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here this evening. And and you you need to know you can bring nothing with you into a relationship with God except your sin. You've not got a pile of goodness you can plop down in front of him and you're more than aware of that. And so you're thankful because you see King Jesus and you see he's got those kinds of people in his line, in his family. He's got the Tamars and the Ruths and the Rahabs and the Bathshebas and that is a comfort to you. Look at the kind of people Jesus came for because look at the kind of line that he came from. So some of us will find a comfort in them. I think some of us will struggle though. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having a Tamar or a Rahab around for lunch at your place? Can you imagine them being in your home group? Using your cutlery? Eating off your plates? Sitting in your chairs, playing with your kids? Can you imagine a woman who disguised herself to have sex with her father-in-law coming to your church. Could you cope being in a church like that? Bathsheba, Uriah, her husband, was essentially murdered and taken out of the picture. Would Would you feel comfortable in a church family that diverse? Sat next to you at church on a Sunday, you're thinking, don't sit by me, don't sit by me, oh, they sat by me. It's messy, isn't it? God's family is messy. I was reading the um, autobiography of a, of a British pastor who went to lead a church in the US um, these last couple of weeks. And he says one of the most formative, ministry-shaping discussions he had as a young visiting preacher um, was with an old lady um, in this church. And she was, she was reaching out to local prostitutes where they lived. And she invited them into church. And the church couldn't cope with her. The church couldn't cope with having them there. And yet Matthew says, and it will get more and more in focus as weeks go by, next week we'll have, or in chapter 2 at least, we'll have magicians coming to worship Jesus. But Matthew says, look what it means to be a son of Abraham. Look what it means to bless the nations. Look what that might look like. Matthew says, God is doing something new. Here is the king. Here is the one from the line of David who's going to rule eternally. Here is the one who's the son of Abraham. He's going to bless the nations. Matthew says they're just the kind of people that Jesus came for. They're just the kind of people that everyone else looks down on. But that is why he came. Let's pray.